price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Holy shit, we just released our Patreon, and we're already so ecstatic at the feedback we've gotten and um, the patronizations from all the many people and listeners like you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We've already reached our second goal, which is incredible. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, watch the video, read the stuff, consider becoming a patron of this wonderful podcast. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you again. Hey everybody, I'm Holden McNeely, your fun, stinky wizard. And I'm Jake Young, your fresh, clean bruiser. Oh my god, so fresh, so clean. Here's the thing, you wear deodorant, and then you put it on again after lunch. Jake, I'm so happy the studio is of decent temperature now. It's gotten a little bit cooler out, and I feel like I'm going to sweat a lot less this episode. I mean less, but but if you're listening to Wizard and the Bruiser, you're gonna get sweaty. And what's a sweatier topic than Hayao Miyazaki? <laughs> that that is the that is a jerk ass segue, but you know what? I'm going to ride it till I die, all right? Thank God we're introducing the king of animated whimsy with some jerky ass segues. <laughs> Uh, Hayao Miyazaki, if you don't know, um, I mean, this guy is, we were just talking about it before, like, what what does it mean to do an episode on Hayao Miyazaki? And what it means is essentially the history of Japanese anime feature films. It is, it is, he literally is there. We fucked up. Uh, It seems like every once in a while we do an episode where it's like, oh yeah, this fun topic. And then, nope, it's actually an onion with 18 different layers with each thing. Like, oh, you can't talk about Hayao Miyazaki without talking about uh, the history of uh, anime films. Well, you can't talk about the history of anime films without talking about the history of Japan. You can't talk about the history of Japan without talking about the history of World War fucking <laughs> two. And on top of that, it's not just that, that it's the history of film and, and animation film in Japan. It's also that this dude's body of work is so stupid, ridiculous, huge, that it makes me feel like a complete lazy piece of shit. And it's just like, why am I even existing on this planet if I can't pump out a manga or an or a, a TV show or an anime film every two seconds this guy's list Holden. of shit that he did in his life is just infuriatingly long Holden come on if you com- I, if you compare yourself to any Japanese creator you'll feel like a lazy <laughs> piece of shit it's fucking 
crazy. These these guys are are so prolific, and and it just really takes me back because you know everybody knows you know Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor Totoro, uh, uh, Spirited, Spirited Away, and and I thought you know we'd be covering a guy whose body of work was like. Eight films, you know, something like that. But I didn't realize the amount of manga, the amount of um, animation television shows that he worked on. Just all these little extra things, like just drawing like tanks for like weird little magazines and like mm-hmm. talking about his childhood. Like he just kept doing all this stuff for fun. Like all this stuff, like the wind rises, like to, to jump to all the way to the end of the episode. The wind rises was him writing a full like crazy long manga for funsies, mm-hmm. and then some. Somebody saw it and was just like, why don't you make a movie out of that? And <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. It's just ridiculous. I mean, everything about his process, everything about his philosophy, there's like two sides to this guy mm-hmm. that I'd never, I didn't quite get a hold of when I was like just a casual fan. Yeah. And that's um, in interviews and like kind of, there's this adorable Miyazaki that everyone's like kind of friendly with, you know, cause he's got the big white beard and like the, the silver hair and the big smile and like mm-hmm. the caterpillar eyebrows and he's like oh it's Totoro oh it's like oh whimsy like magic children's films like uh, Kiki's delivery service Mm -hmm. and in interviews he's like very funny and engaging and has like a very like uh, you know self-deprecating air about him he always has that like funny little artist smock on like cigarette hanging out of his mouth he's like a funny guy and then like in other interviews he's just like oh I genuinely believe that uh, society is broken and we will all die. <laughs> <laughs> the village, the villains are all parts of me. For years, I've been wondering what it would be like if all those negative elements were forced onto the main character's side. I can understand a character with that kind of anger. That's a quote from me. <laughs> oh, thank God. I thought you were launching into your, your terrorist manifesto. <laughs> so an attempt to try to explain this man, we'll, we'll start from the very beginnings of his life and try to give you a decent overview of all the kooky ass shit that he's done here in the Wizard of <laughs> Are Bruiser. we starting this kooky ass shit with the World War II bombing of Japan? I'm going to say the bombing of Utsunomiya <laughs> is a pretty uh, important part of Miyazaki's life. <laughs> Born on January 5th, 1941 in Tokyo. He was the second of four sons. His father was the uh, director at an airplane manufacturing company. He was making stuff for fighter planes in World War II. He made the rudder of the uh, Miyazaki's dad uh, manufactured the rudder of the famous Zero fighter, mm, mm-hmm. the Mitsubishi Zero, which was like kind of the the main. Uh, I don't know, bad guy in World War II dogfighting. <laughs> like if it was a Boston Cuphead, it would be it would be like right in, right on the money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Miyazaki was three years old at the time of the bombing of Utsunomiya, and the family uh, had to evacuate directly afterwards. This is in July of 1945. Now this moment has a huge, profound effect on Miyazaki. Uh, th- this was uh, Utsunomiya. I'm trying to say that correctly. Major garrison located for the Imperial Japanese Army. It was the location of numerous war industries, um, and like the one that his father worked for. And it was the first attacked by the bombing uh, campaign of um, from America in July 10th, 1945. Now, on the night of July 12th, 1945, 133 Boeing B-29 Super Fortresses dropped 802.9 tons of bombs uh, down on this place. The Japanese suffered 628 deaths, 1,150 severely injured, 9,490 buildings were destroyed, and 47,976 people were rendered home. 
homeless. And Miyazaki, this had such such a strong, deep, dark fucking. He listed as one influence. of his earliest memories is the sky being alit as if it was dawn from the flames of the building. And so from here on out, as he moves into junior high school, and this is the first moment he begins to aspire to want to be a manga artist. And he really, but he he didn't really draw any people. He only drew planes and tanks and battleships because this stuff was just coursing through his mind so strongly. Uh, at the time, he's getting inspired by other manga artists. Uh, Tetsuji Fukushima, who created a sci-fi manga serial, the Devil, the Devil of the Desert, inspired by the Legend of Aladdin, and also inspired by American comics. And this, he's going to kind of circle around to his own version of this later on. Um, Soji Yamakawa, which I wasn't able to actually find any information on, um, really, on his work, but Osamu Tetsuka, who created Astro Boy, was also a big the Godfather influence. of manga. The literal, he's kind of ba- Tezuka is the guy who kind of like took the. Disney aesthetic, mm-hmm. the the uh, Western wide-eyed um, uh, cartoon uh, uh, designs, and like brought them into the Japanese subconscious. He kind of uh, revolutionized uh, manga. He revolutionized television anime, and he is uh, like basically the founding father of what we know as anime. I mean, essentially, you can't, like, anybody who went on to do, do anime as a child was influenced by this guy. Like, I, I'm pretty sure everybody we've talked to, because I think we've mm-hmm. talked about others in the past. There were a lot of, like, like um, crossovers here that I couldn't even remember where they appeared in other episodes, but I just, uh, these are all names that come up over and over again when we research this stuff. Um, it's, but, also, it's also kind of a thing to point out is that even though he was a small child during World War II, uh, he came of age during what's known as the Showa uh, restoration or like the the economic miracle of Japan, where Ah, from the ashes of intense devastation, a few nuclear bombings and uh, a gross uh, bunch of white people coming into your island fortress and being like, oh, hey, you know that emperor you thought was God? Uh, We kicked his ass, no form of democracy, dumbasses. which led to increased industrialization. Uh, dance Dance Revolution. The Dance Dance Revolution of Japan swept <laughs> the nation in 1974. So he's he was born, but so he was between these two eras. He like understood this idyllic countryside version of Japan and saw in real time as it was replaced by industry and economic growth. Yes. And I feel like that uh, that kind of loss, that kind of forgotten time is incredibly influential in his works. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, he destroyed most of his early work because he felt he was aping Tetsuka's style too much. He probably a, was. A real shame. Um, and uh, he, he gained a great fondness for animation after seeing the film Panda and the Magic Serpent. It was a 1958 oh color anime feature film. It was the first ever anime to be released in America. It's also known as Tale of the White Serpent. It's a translation of a Japanese folk tale um, created by Toei and animation um, with a staff of 13,590 people. It was the whole thing. And it has a heroine as its lead and a female lead character is Miyazaki's like whole thing. If you ever talk to Miyazaki, the first thing he's going to say is, hey, I'm his Miyazaki and my whole thing is I like ladies in leads. It's uh, I watched uh, a little bit of it because I was really uh, okay. I was really like intrigued that this was the thing. Meanwhile, he was 17 years old when he saw it. Yeah. Uh, it was 1958 at this point. And um, 
This was the first full color Japanese animated feature. Toei uh, was like basically banking on this being their big international hit, even though overseas it did not do well. But um, the st- just so you know, uh, the story is uh, based on an ancient Chinese tale of like a royal, like a kid's pet snake. Uh, he's separated and then yeah. she turns into a beautiful woman. Yeah. And then they like go through an adventure and they become lovers. My pet, so I'm going to say something terrible about my pet snake right now, Jake. Stop it's, me, Jake. But uh, the <laughs> the f- main female character was like drawn to be this like classical beauty with like wants and needs. And like, you know, she has her own arc, even though she used to be a pet snake. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, it's it's like he was he. It kind of just like blew his mind how much of an emotional effect, uh, you know, he fell in love with these characters. He was uh, in awe of the full motion animation, which, again, in 1958 in Japan was a daring new technology. Absolutely. Again, this is literally the first animation feature ever for uh, Japan. And Toei was uh, it's it's Toei was the big animation company. Uh, yes. for decades in Japan. They and were, it's you know, yeah, still around to this day. They were initially referred to as the Disney of the East, apparently. Like, they <laughs> sort of got that moniker. Um, so he's heavily inspired by this. In 1963, he gets employed by the Toei Animation uh, Company. So there you go. He goes right in with the, peop- with the company that inspired him immediately. And he was an in-between artist at first. Now, and, and I had to look this up, actually. In-between artist oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is essentially when um, the artist draws, like, maybe a point A and a point B. The in-between artist goes in and just creates, creates the transition frames. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's the keyframe animators are the people who are like kind of the rock stars, the higher paid people, the people with vision that like Mm -hmm. kind of flesh out how the story is going to be told. And the in-between animators actually back in those days had to wear, literally wear dog masks and were sort of, yes. And they were, they were sort of, they always had lie like this on our edutainment podcast. (laughs) They always, they forced them to put hot coals on their knees to keep them, to to remind them. We're a reliable source of fun, entertaining (laughs) facts. You can't just build a fucking saw movie out of 1960. 60s Toei animation. At the end of every job, they would be sh- they would essentially be executed manually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miyazaki is the undead. <laughs> great, great. Thanks. Thanks for enlightening our our eager supportive audience. All right, fine. And none of that's true, but I will say this. The movie that he did the first in between art for was Doggy March, mm-hmm. uh, as well as an anime TV series, the first produced by Toei, and that was called Wolf Boy Ken, which uh, boasted more frames than other animes at the time and uh, was, was definitely a... a a good success for Toei Animation. And uh, he actually was always kind of a bit of a fighter early on. He was a leader in a labor dispute and became the chief secretary of Toei's labor union in 1964, which to be honest with you, if you're like immediately becoming the head of the labor union because you're starting shit one year into your job, you got some fucking balls. Dude, the Toei strike was like incredibly important. Uh, it was uh Basically, what had happened was is that Toei was taking all these jobs from like overseas contractors mm. and just kind of dumping these just awful projects uh, because the animation was so much cheaper. But uh, Miyazaki and uh, his uh, his his cohort, I guess his peer that later formed Studio Ghibli, Isao Takahata, uh, were both like, fuck you. We're goddamn amazing at this. You show us some goddamn respect. And uh, it was like from this conflict and from this gathering of new talent 
that uh, Toei had produced basically the gold, again, with the Disney analogy, uh, kind of the golden age of uh, Japanese anim animated features. And the uh, movies that we're about to talk about that he worked on have like roaring adventure and these like beautiful senses of like dr of of uh, melodrama. It, it's kind of I'm trying to think of a similar like Bollywood. Yeah. Kind of the deal where there's like melancholy and death and like hard, but then also like funny animals on yeah. like side capers. Um, the 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 Toei animations that Miyazaki helped work on, along with uh, the other people at Toei at this time, were incredibly popular in Japan, beloved. Uh, and when you watch them now, they're like it, it, they're a little all over the place. Like if you see footage from like uh, from Puss in Boots or. Um, What's the other one? Uh, yeah, Horus, Prince of the Sun. It's like you, there's a lot of like talent and enthusiasm on display, but also like, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about Horus, uh, Prince of the Sun, because that was actually a, an incredibly important, pivotal film for um, uh, Miyazaki to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I, I have to introduce his mentor here, Yasuo Otsuka, as a child also drew a lot of military vehicles and whatnot, got his start working on Tale of the White Serpent, so he, he worked on the film that inspired Miyazaki so much, and he, he had his specialization in comical bad guys, believed that genuine realism doesn't suit animation needed, uh, that, that, that animation needed constructed realism. He works with Otsuka, Miyazaki does, on the great adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun. Um, he was the chief animator, concept artist, and scene designer. It was directed by Isao Takahata, also mentored by Otsuka, also survived a major air raid by the U.S. as a child. It's almost like all Japanese people survived some air raid by the United States back in those days. I mean, it's... It was a complicated how do you do. <laughs> His work with me is Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go out and say it. You know what? Uh, the global conflict colloquially known as World War II? A bit much. <laughs> it was a lot happened back then. <laughs> a lot was going on, and it created, you know, created a lot of good artists. As a weird <laughs> side effect, his work with Miyazaki would be the partnership that would last fifty years. If you don't know who Takahata is, you're going to find out a lot more about Taka Takahata throughout the course of this episode. Actually, um, they introduced a bunch of technical story and storytelling innovations in anime. It was a more adult story. It had psychological realism. There was a visual complexity to the work. There were political and social themes. And stylistic violence. This is essentially Waterworld. Is that right, Jake? Um, most <laughs> things are Waterworld. <laughs> Can we use that as a quote for the show? Yes. Wizard <laughs> of the Bruiser, most things are Waterworld. It took three years to make. And that's because everybody involved were such perfectionists that it just took way longer, three to four times longer than it took for other films of its time. And it was also heavily, heavily collaborative. And I always love to see this whenever we cover any episodes. But there was so much. Miyazaki, even though he was more uh, on the animation side, he was giving a lot of impact on the story storyline and all that good stuff. Um, part of the original strike that uh, Miyazaki took part of was that uh, the freedom and the collaboration in these grand projects were way more fulfilling than like the licensed tie-in shows that Toei was also foisting upon its animation staff mm -hmm. for little for like little money, and like that was a big source of frustration in his life was uh, how Toei 
could give him these moments of like grandiose like experimentation and expression and then send him to work on like a shitty anime like manga adaptation mm-hmm. or even worse a uh, american cartoon series uh, the other thing about this film uh, that I'll say, that all the films of this time, I'm just going to blanket statement here. They're all set in a post-apocalyptic world, and we definitely covered this in our Akira episode, but it's essentially because after World War II, Japan was essentially a post-apocalyptic society. Uh, so it, it, there's always that kind of element to a lot of the films we're going to talk about up and then up, 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 up until we get to My Neighbor Totoro. But we'll get Yay. there in a little while. First, we have to trudge through some deeply disturbing post-apocalyptic hell realms, Jake. What, what, what if we didn't? <laughs> what if we got to the fun stuff that everyone likes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to briefly kind of push through a lot of this stuff because I do think there's some interesting things here that definitely shapes Miyazaki's career uh, as he gets into uh, the point where he decides to go off and form Studio Ghibli. Uh, he worked on a manga. Studio what? G- G- Ghibli? G- Ghibli. Ghibli? I've heard other people be like Ghibli and kind of leave the B out a little bit. No. Okay. Studio, Studio Ghibli is a bad Kevin Smith movie. Studio Ghibli. Yeah. Ghibli. Ah. I hate this part of every episode where there's always a word <laughs> that is just interpreted a million different ways. So what? what tell me again. I, I say Ghibli. Okay. Ghibli. Manga comes into play now. Finally, he gets to actually do manga. Um, he, he creates a manga adaptation of Puss in Boots. It's serialized in 12 weekly installments for uh, promotional purposes with Toei's anime film that came out uh, around the same time for which he created the key animation. And with Puss in Boots, we also get, um, you know, uh, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. That's when he leaves. Well, I, I'm jumping ahead. This is the reason why I'm jumping ahead. I've noticed this with anime the same as I've noticed with early film in America. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, so much of the work that happens is adaptation so for anime uh, film it's all it's all like adaptation manga it's all like adaptations of earlier you know literary works or or hollywood films or whatever it may be um back in you know early hollywood like they're all of their source material seemed to come from like broadway musicals and like like there were you know I, i think with miyazaki was the advent of really super original storylines and kind of uh, very uniquely Japanese, you know, storylines and things. Whereas up until uh, like through this era of anime and manga, it's a lot of like using old folklore and like, uh, you know, Aladdin and stuff like that. And these, all these sort of super, you know, uh, tale as old as time kind of um, uh, story pieces. I mean, Miyazaki has always loved um, specifically Western children's literature uh-huh. was a huge influence on his life. Uh, the Little Prince or A Little Prince that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, the dumb kid on the space rock who meets a fun pilot uh, was incredibly influential. The, uh, the, the name Ghibli was based on an Italian aircraft that like was inspired by this kind of turn of the century aviation stuff. Uh, he did uh, a extensive treatment for a Pippi Longstockings mm. movie. Uh, even to the day, even today, uh, studio yeah, until the uh, author forced him to stop. By the way, yeah, Pippi Longstockings. He actually uh, met with the author and uh, was not given permission to create that. Um, That's which Swedish. Is, which is- Dickhead. Uh, uh, yeah, he, but he's always been really into these, ch- and I feel like that leads us to these incredibly original 
um, fairy tale like films like Spirited Away, you know, where you're like, oh, this feels like it's total. And it, and Spirited Away does get you know uh, Alice in Wonderland references for mm-hmm. influence, but. It's this wholly unique story that feels like it is based on some actual old, like, Japanese folktale or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it is actually, uh, you know, kind of rig- super originally Miyazaki's. I also didn't realize he worked on Lupin the Third. Uh, the, nope. an- the the Wait, anime. did you never... S- wait, are you talking about well, the original TV or... He worked on Lupin the Third Part One, right? Uh, and, but Castle of Cagliostro is like yes. Is, did you ever see that? By the way, we're about to get to that, and it's that amazing. is I have not, and I really want to see it. It, it looks is. awesome. Well, Lupin the Third, by the way, we we talk about it, I believe, in the Cowboy Bebop episode, right? Yes. Okay, great, because that it is inspired Cowboy Bebop in a lot of ways. It's it's um, this like international thief that's being tracked down, and he's sort of like this like he's, cool, he's, comical, but dramatic, but he's action packed. Like, Kind of Rebel. like a swing in '60s archetype. Uh, kind of, you know, he has his like uh, his girlfriend, his his like femme fatale Fujiko, and like his tough as nails gangster buddy. I, what's his? I forgot that character's name. I feel bad now, but uh, you know, it's it's um, it had it had pretty much it had a pretty hard edge. There was like a lot of violence, a lot of sexual jokes in there. And when he adapted it um, to direct Castle of Cagliostro, it's like a much softer, more G shucks. Uh, attitude, like uh, the horniness inherent in the Lupin character, right. uh, was kind of turned into a begrudging chivalry in the movie. And this is Castle of Cagliostro. You're this talking? is yeah, Castle yeah. of Cagliostro, gotcha. um, but it is it holds up to this day. There's a ton of incredibly vibrant and like uh, kinetic sequences. This kind of fantasy gangster Europe that it inhabits is just really well realized. I feel like the setting is a, in a big, and I read the phrase Paris in our dreams as a, as a, a way oh, to describe Miyazaki this setting. Oh, fucking loves old Europe. So, like, one of the cool things, it, it seems like the setting is a character in the film, and, and it says with his process, that I, I'm getting some insight into his process when reading about it, that he began drawing a bird's eye view of the setting before creating the story to completion, that kind of way he the way he works is essentially he'll really start more on a visual storyboarding sense and then and then the story sort of starts to form itself as he goes in a, in a lot of ways and oh, that yeah. that that becomes a reoccurring um uh statement about his process for each of his films moving forward for for his own movies um even even ones based on his own like manga work he'll just start drawing the storyboards and like not even himself know how it's going to end up and like the animation team will start animating his storyboards from the first half of the movie while he's still working on storyboarding the second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. So like it's a level of granular control that is amazing to like to to for a filmmaker to have. That's why he's given so much auteur credit mm-hmm. is because like everything from the sound to the shots he's overseeing and is just the way he wants it to appear. And Castle of Cagliostro is his debut as a director of a feature. So this is really why we say this is the moment where his vision starts to truly emerge. There's also the reoccurring element of the use of unexpected and unique camera angles and attention to individual movement of the characters. Oh, yeah. There's just this, like, this is really where we see, and that's why I'm really dying to go back and watch the Castle of Cagliostro and I would recommend to other people to do the same just based off of the basic research that I did on it. Also, I do want to mention, I mean, we jumped past. You have to understand. There he manga, T 
TV series. There's uh, he directed the F- uh, Future Boy Conan. He uh, he adapted Andrew Alexander Keys' The Incredible Tide. Alexander Keys' The Incredible Tide. The Incredible Tide by Alexander Keys and of Green, uh, Green Gables. He's wor- he was working on that. He uh, and also he starts floating through different animation companies. So he leaves Toei Animation um, back. This is way back before he gets to Castle Cagliostro. He leaves Toei Animation. To, he joins APRO. APRO become during the time he's working APRO, it becomes Zuio Izo, and then later becomes Nippon, which I think we um, are, might be more familiar with that. That's that's back in 1975. He's floating through these different companies. Um, he's he's creating all working on all these different projects. Um, uh, the, he the shorts uh, Panda Go Panda. I didn't even realize we, we skipped past that. He that that's really what got him um, a lot of popularity, like in theaters and stuff. Panda Go Panda is kind of considered a very early prototype to Totoro. Totoro, right? And and so uh, th- th- these are two shorts. They came out during the great uh, during Japan's Great Panda Craze of 1972. I don't know if you know about this. The government is that announced like, uh, how in the 80s, like America just loved Australia for no goddamn yeah, reason. Yeah, what it was that. Why why were we so obsessed with stupid Australia? I know offense my Australian listeners, but just, please. Just if you weren't alive, just just know that sometime in 1988, everyone was like, hey, you know those dumb hats with the corks hanging off them? <laughs> Let's be obsessed with that for no reason. You had uh Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile Dundee, you had Outback Steakhouse, you had The Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, what was that? It's, Weird. Anyways, Falsta. Australian bat. I haven't seen a can of Fosters in like a it's decade. Forever. Uh, and uh, yeah, essentially what happened was China um, loaned a pair of giant pandas uh, to Japan as part of a panda diplomacy. <laughs> and uh, Panda Go Panda is about a little <laughs> girl who gets um, adopted by a panda. I'm surprised you didn't learn about Japan's great panda craze of 1972 you back in high school. I, we had to do a whole semester on it. <laughs> it was it was black history in the U.S. and then Japan's great panda craze of 1972. You don't remember those two semesters? Martin Luther King got assassinated. Yada, yada, yada. Panda madness. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm recalling it now. I'm recalling it now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And yes, they do call that a precursor to My Name or Totoro. Definitely check out like uh, promotional stills for Panda Go Panda uh, because it's definitely a, a big deal. And also, there's just a lot of little things. It's a little girl who gets adopted by a panda into a fa- and a, into a Papa Panda into a family with a little kid panda. The pandas uh, uh, sort of like the little girl and the pandas and all uh, that uh, stuff. Juvenile panda is called a peepoo. Ooh, I just pee peed on a peepoo. <laughs> See, you're not the only one that can just make up bullshit in our <laughs> educational podcast. I <laughs> that's a lie. It is the biggest lie I've ever told. Ugh. Well, uh, congratulations. That's, a very, that's the <laughs> sweetest lie of all time. Are you Santa Claus with your fucking sweet ass lie? Um, and there's just so many things we have to like put. We have to kind of gloss over because he's just... Constantly writing manga, TV series, anime films. And then after the Castle of Cagliostro, this is really when he gets to a kind of... Uh, this is really when he get he he's, he starts to kind of hit a stride. He gets a few projects that don't really go anywhere. Um, 
you know, there was there was a he wanted a, a adaptation of Richard Corbin's comic book Rolf, which got didn't go anywhere. He uh, was working on a few episodes. He directed a few episodes of Sherlock Hound until Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's estate shut it down. He got shut down by a lot of estates. Japan has a very let's call it who gives a fuck attitude towards <laughs> intellectual property. <laughs> so I, it's it's gonna happen. Um, he also was working on the Daydream Data Notes, and I just want to bring this up because it was uh, again. Him working on uh, him doing uh, bringing his illustrations of tanks and airplanes to a magazine and doing these weird kind of dreamy sort of um, passages about them. And and he even mentioned somewhere, I I don't know if I have this quote or not, that he's just only happy, truly happy when he's drawing these like tanks and planes and things from his from when he was once a kid. But all of this is uh, kind of a precursor to him working on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, Jake? Oh, uh, you might know it in America That's your name. <laughs> as Warriors of the Wind. Oh, yeah. Was it called Warriors of the Wind? Did you see Nausicaa? Yeah, I saw it. It's it's. Uh, I saw it and I read the uh, manga. Um, the manga that spanned 112 volumes and is what, 1,060 pages? You read it? Yeah, it's really great. It um, is. Yeah, it's pure Miyazaki. It definitely expands on what... So he was... I think he he wanted to make the anime, and but he was... He was uh, Told to like push it as a manga first to like judge uh, how the idea will take because it's very out there. It involves uh, kind of a post-apocalyptic society after a vaguely unexplained environmental crisis that has left almost, you know, most of the world covered in like poisonous spores and like the the fauna and, and flora that has adopted to this poison world is uh, like growing monstrous and, and inhospitable to humans. Um, there's like hints that like this was formerly a technological society that reached a great crisis. Like they don't know how to forge metal. Uh, I can't remember if this is an idea from the actual anime or the manga, but like there was literally an entire like city where they just harvested the ceramics off of old spaceships for like making tools. Hmm. Um, but uh the the manga became a huge hit. People really really enjoyed it, and uh, that gave enough interest for the movie to do well. And the movie kind of hits all of these incredible uh, Miyazaki touch points. The Nausicaa, the main character, is this beautiful woman who's like kind of off on her own. She's like kind of uh, independently curious and kind of studying uh, the new nature that has emerged in this poisoned world where other people don't want to go but it's also kind of just like the woods behind her house she's just kind of curious about it um and throughout the film she encounters kind of mm, the 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 realities of society and grows to accept the responsibility of adulthood it's mm. filled with all these amazing airship designs uh-huh. and creature designs uh we mentioned in our uh evangelion episode that a young hideki hideaki Anno, uh, did some of the creature animation, including the fucking deformed fetal yeah. god warrior. That's this is the movie. Okay, great. Um, the uh, I like the manga a lot better. It's uh, you know, but oh, and uh, even the villains, even the nefarious warlike villains in the movie are still incredibly relatable and have like genuine motivations for what they do. And this is when that real that dynamic really emerges in his work. Probably, I'm guessing that, that these villains with. Uh, more, you know, understandable motivation. I mean, I didn't, I didn't watch Puss in Boots, <laughs> but uh, this is this is the. I, I mean, it's his. What car- about Castle of Cagliostro? You watched that? Where was the was that villain more kind uh, of that had more of a fairy tale aesthetic? Um, it was right. still more of like a 
a children's Disney villain kind of guy. You know, he's just a big evil duke that wants to, like, kidnap the princess. Ugh, I had um, a big evil duke this morning. Hey! Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep, keep high-fiving. Bl- there was blood Never in it. Never stop bl- high-fiving that poop joke. There was blood in it. No, oh, God, really? <laughs> no. it, it's probably a fissure. Like, don't freak out. Just, like, <laughs> see if you've eaten, like... Any like uh, maybe uh, anything with seeds in it? What are we talking about? We're talking about the life of Hayao Miyazaki and how yes, even though it's scary to see blood in your stool, <laughs> its pr- anal fissures are alarmingly regular, especially in a man approaching his in his thirties, such as such as us. I'll get a doctor to look at it next week. Okay, good for you. Yeah, um, so this is an adult as fuck. Is sorry, that's my protein alarm. <laughs> Down 24 pounds, feeling great. Wow, you're yeah. looking great. It's it's genuinely nice. I miss pizza. <laughs> I did. I, I literally stopped two days, started eating health, quote unquote healthier two days ago, and I I was <laughs> freaking out walking by the pizza Ria, uh, earlier. Um, anywho, back to the back to the the great work. Oh, oh, the one other thing about Nausicaa Valley of the Wind is uh, it was adapted and uh, brought to America. It was cut to shit. Mm. It was like just horribly handled. The Mm. voice actors claimed they were not told the story that they were taking part in. Uh, You can look up the original poster for Warriors of the Wind. And if you're familiar with Nausicaa, uh, you'll see that like there's literally three characters in the poster riding one of the Omu bug creatures that are just not in the movie. Huh. They just invented like a spooky robot guy, a male protagonist, and like I guess the fetal god m- monster thing, but like he's tiny and holding a lightsaber. Like they genuinely like it was it was kind of the first the first kind of bold thing where uh uh just an American company just was not down with kind of the what Miyazaki was was bringing to the table, right? And I think this really is why segueing into this the the start of Studio Ghibli that Miyazaki and crew uh, from then on were like, "Fuck you, no cuts, mm-hmm. no cuts whatsoever to our work." Um, he the same crew that worked on it uh, essentially all formed together to create Studio Ghibli after this pivotal work, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Um, this was. N- seen as a great success for them afterwards they found studio ghibli together this is uh miyazaki takahata um who we mentioned earlier yasuyoshi tokuma who is the one who actually convinced uh miyazaki to adapt nausicaa and the producer toshio suzuki they all founded it um miyazaki came up with the name it's a uh, from the italian noun ghibli based on the Libyan Arabic name for the hot desert wind of that country. And the idea was that the uh, studio would blow a new wind through the anime industry. This is uh, Miyazaki's obsession with turn-of-the-century airplanes again because it was specifically the bold aviators of the era uh, would, uh, you know, basically the, the mail route from like Europe to the to like colonial Africa was this hazardous like adventurous uh, kind of ex- uh, it, it was the Pony Express. I'm trying to think of like a romantic idea of like the brave explorer in his lone machine over uncharted territory and the hot yeah the 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 hot wind was like described by Italian and European aviators as like harsh and like dry. Uh, also, the name of an Italian aircraft uh, yes. also called. Uh, that was called the Ghibli with a hard G. The mm. studio is Ghibli with a soft G. Um, but uh, it's weird uh, to think about, but the same way that uh, Akira was financed mostly 
by like a kind of hodgepodge of publishers and corporations. Uh, Suzuki, yeah, Suzuki, yeah, Toshio Suzuki worked for a uh, publishing company. It was the 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 seed money that made Studio Ghibli possible was from a like basically fan magazines about huh. anime. Huh. Uh, I'm trying to find the name of the company again. Uh, 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 Takuma Shoten, uh, which also which made Animage magazine, which if you're like a hardcore otaku, you'll know the name. They tried to publish in America at the height of the anime boom. But it was literally like like if Wizard, it's okay. I'm trying to throw if like Wizard magazine formed <laughs> its own comics company and it revolutionized the world, mm-hmm. um, which I guess was almost what Image Comics was. I'm, huh? get, I'm getting <laughs> to tell the story of Hayao Miyazaki is to tell the story of the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, and their first film was Castle in the Sky. Did you see Castle in the Sky, Jake? I've, I've always that's the one I've actually been missing for a while. Everyone knows the uh, iconic robot design with like the long flat arms and the mm. and the goggly eyes. Ah, uh, yes. Um, also, again, uh, obsessed with flying machines and mm-hmm. like movement and and like kind of these western tropes with these these relatable more relatable uh, characters and. And kind of vague political uh, uh, leanings behind and it. And it's coming so hard off the heels of Nasca. It's literally the exact same production crew. Um, uh, Miyazaki apparently was uh, witnessed a, a mining strike upon his first visit to Wales in 1984 and admired the miners' dedication to their work and community, based a lot of the architecture and the look of it on that. Uh, oh yeah, visit. there's a lot of class stuff. That uh-huh. the castle in the sky. Absolutely, and and it did pretty well. But the real murderer the real film films uh mm-hmm. because i was not aware of this oh yeah this yeah. would be one hell of a double feature to come out next from studio ghibli and really put them on the map hard were my neighbor totoro and holy fuck grave of the fireflies were released on the same bill in 1988 how the shit does that even work that i don't know you, which one do you watch first Take, uh definitely totoro and then fireflies there's no going back after fireflies <laughs> like there's no watching any like there's no cleansing that palette dude i'm i grave of the fireflies so by the way i talked about takahashi i actually i've seen grave of the fireflies i've never seen totoro really yeah i just it just never came up i think i saw i think a long time ago i watched I watched um, sort of, uh, it was kind of on in the background while I was, and I was like, Wait, oh, Totoro yeah. or Fireflies? Totoro, definitely <laughs> not Fire. I was literally about to say that Fireflies, which was uh, directed, of course, Isao. by um, Isao Takahata, who I had mentioned earlier, because um, this, I mean, this is one of the harshest films, one of the best films I've ever seen, mm-hmm. um, animated or otherwise. Uh, it's w- one of a very small handful of movies that I don't know if I'll ever be able to watch again because <laughs> it was so upsetting. Um, I, 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 I know that's a hard sell for you after saying that, but I, no, you have to me, watch Grave of the Fire. Like, if you have not seen it, you shattered. need to see it. It is, it is something else it is about of course um world war ii and it's just this great depiction great greatly tragically upsetting depiction of um it's a brother and a sister it is a brother and his very young sister trying to survive trying to survive uh during the during world war ii uh trying to deal with food shortages and all the and like poverty and just all it's it's beautiful it will leave an impression on you and like make sure you don't have to like go 
entertain a children's birthday party after you yeah, see it. Yeah, it's the dear Zachary of anime films. Boom! That's what it is. Boom, it you, is, you it said it. It will fuck you up for a couple of days. Um, so Meanwhile, like... Meanwhile, no, this, my neighbor Totoro. Just for the, for the record, <laughs> like, during this exact time while Ghibli was, was like, making a name for himself, this is when, like, Disney was kind of, like, flailing. They were uh-huh. making, like, the Black Cauldron and, uh-huh. like, the Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of it's kind of interesting that um, while Disney was kind of spinning its wheels in Japan, they were having a creative breakthrough because both of these movies uh, have an um, have like moments of stillness about them and yeah. like relate and like characters that you recognize as human. Yes, very human. I was rewatching Totoro. These children just felt so real in this weird mysterious uh, magical kind of place they find themselves in at points you know um or at least around these weird magical uh, creatures super producer megan can you i i need some whimsy in my life can you play a bit of the theme song from my neighbor totoro please now this is a good time to do this roger ebert quote uh i think this encapsulates it pretty well it would never have won its worldwide audience just because of its warm heart. It is also rich with human comedy and the way it observes the two remarkably convincing, lifelike little girls. It is a little sad, a little scary, a little surprising, and a little informative, just like life itself. It depends on the situation instead of a plot and suggests that the wonder of life and the resources of imagination supply all the adventure you need. Yay. Um, so... This next, so this, so this era of Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki um, are just, just home run after home run, mm-hmm. um, and they're breaking box office records. Not just for like, m- like Japanese made movies, but uh, they're killing at the box office, breaking box office records in Japan as original animated films. And I'm, I'm you have to understand this is one of the largest economies in the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it was only in the two thousands where China, a nation of a billion people, their economy finally outpaced Japan. Like Japan was an economic juggernaut. They were making bank. And so, uh, and you got to realize too, like Totoro is like Mickey mouse. It's like Winnie the Pooh for Japanese kids. Mm-hmm. Like, like that, that they're also establishing that sort of, Legacy for themselves with with the kind of characters that are coming out of what they're doing, um, which is why it's interesting. The the next film to come out uh, is kind of interesting to me with Porco Rosso. Wait, did we skip uh, Kiki's Delivery Service? Oh, I think I did. Yeah. What can you talk about with Kiki's Delivery Service? You, you it mentioned made it earlier. Mad it bank. I didn't even talk about it that. Well, made... It was a different director, though, right? No, than no, Miyazaki. That, oh, no, that was a Miyazaki. Oh, okay. Are you uh, sure? Um. I mean, it's. If, I mean, it's his art style that doesn't quite say anything. Uh, he completed the. Stu- uh, what? Fuck it. Wiki- Wikipedia. How you doing? <laughs> Studio Ghibli acquired the rights uh, to do Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Miyazaki's work. Oh, okay. Uh, so now Katabuchi was uh, chosen as director, scriptwriter. But Miyazaki's dissatisfaction with the first draft led him to make changes to the project, ultimately taking the role of director. Um, Miyazaki and Suzuki uh, uh, visited the author and invited her to the studio. She allowed the project to continue after that. The film was intended to be a 60-minute special expanded to a feature film after Miyazaki completed the new storyboards and screenplay. Kiki's Delivery Service premiered in 1989 and earned 2.5, I'm sorry, 2.15 billion yen, 
billion yen <laughs> um, at the box office and was the highest grossing film in Japan in 1989. And uh, Key's Delivery Service is, I remember being a little bit bored by it. It's very idyllic. It kind of like revels in its atmosphere of like quaint uh, pseudo Parisian small provincial like bliss but it's definitely a good moodscape it's definitely a very like pleasant time yes um it, it's again, actually it is actually i'm saying yes even though that's one i have missed i did not, um, I did not see that again one. emphasis on flight uh mm-hmm. kiki on her broom her uh god i'm sorry i should have done more research on this we got distracted by like begging the entire world for money this week <laughs> if you want to if you want to date this episode um <laughs> But again, Miyazaki's obsession with flight came comes through in this. There's lavish illustration of flying machines and like just seeing the world from a high above place. And the next one is not much different. Porco Rosso, about a World War One ex-fighter ace that is cursed to becoming a pig. Uh, Miyazaki actually would later find the work to have been a bit foolish, saying that it was too mature for children with its anti-war sentiments and everything. Did you ever watch Porco Rosso? I did. I loved it. One it of is, my favorite names of a movie. It's, uh, I never saw it. I, I really want to. It's, uh, it, it seems pretty great. The weird thing about uh, Porco Rosso is that it was actually uh, originally funded to be an in-flight like edutainment film for Japan Airlines. Like they footed most of the bill of the original movie even after it was uh, extended into a full-length anti-war diatribe set at the air, sat at the set at during the I think set during World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 like finding out Coca-Cola made like I don't know uh, Dunkirk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is incredibly well done. Porco Rosso is such a charismatic and like fun main character. And again, it's like this 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 forgotten world, this pastiche of like of the of 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 uh, old world charm and like the freedom of flight and all of these Miyazaki themes again coming together. Uh, definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Um, I don't know if unless you hate smiling. <laughs> Or are like worried you'll become a furry, which you might. He's a handsome pig man. Now we're going to delve into where Miyazaki gets into his triumphs. And I do want to say this about this next portion. These next like couple movies could easily get their own episode and by all accounts probably will at some point. So we're probably not going to spend as much time on them as you might like. But uh, that's because I'm. Like probably going to do a Spirited Away episode at yeah. some point. I'm probably going to do a Princess Mononoke episode at some point. So Princess Mononoke is um, a movie. One of my favorites of all time. It's fantastic. It's phenomenal. I think I saw it back in college. We didn't really talk about uh, the personal experience with any of this stuff really in terms of like... Because uh, we fucked up and picked too broad of a topic <laughs> for a single episode as we kind of unfortunately do sometimes. I do remember though seeing Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away and it kind of all, all these films back in uh, college when I think Spirit Away it ju- was just coming out, maybe. Um, well, I'm there was the this is where out. Miyazaki kind of uh, kind of goes from it's where he it's where he becomes elevated as like the god of 2D animation because definitely, especially with Princess Mononoke. He's he uh, this is the first time we actually see some computer animation come into play. Apparently he had a writer's block working on Princess Mononoke and then he started working on this music video where he started experimenting with computer animation. So we get like about it's only like five minutes or so of computer animation in the film, but it is. Oh, it's there. that gross pig monster. Yeah. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's that gross pig monster. Uh, he took a group of artists in 1990. Megan just look 
looking up Princess Mononoke pig monster. <laughs> In May 1995, Miyazaki. Yep, there's yep, that gross fucker. There's that big gross pig monster. Uh, Princess Mononoke. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Miyazaki took a group of artists and animators to the ancient forests of Yakushima and the mountains of Shirakami Sanchi, taking photographs and making sketches. Environment is so key to his work, and he really made it an important, important aspect. In Totoro, you really, you really see it there with that beautiful countryside that is so detailed and yet so fantastic. It's, it's just these wonderfully fantastical versions of a very real place that he's able to translate so well. But he's not naive about it because especially in Mononoke, nature is not your friend necessarily. Mm -hmm. It is vicious. It Mm -hmm. is uh, the the grand forest spirit is like kind of this uncaring, unknowable thing. And like the more you get to know the evil, polluting, industrial bad guys, the more you see that they're just people trying to make their way in the world. Um, It was said he didn't want to necessarily create an accurate history of medieval Japan, but he wanted to portray the very beginnings of the seemingly insoluble conflict between the natural world and modern industrial civilization and that we see a ton in his work nature versus civilization moving forward and and you definitely get a lot of quotes from him about uh, the way you know he, he definitely did not like um, mass consumerism he didn't like to see um, that that sort of uh, thing going on around him he, he was always obsessed with this kind of battle between nature and these kind of empty machines as he would call them things like that and yet at the same time he's no happier than when he's drawing tanks and that is what is the, fascinating to me mo- about the one man. of the most common things he loves is the freedom of aircraft mm-hmm. um and uh meanwhile like this is where this is where a lot of uh, a lot of his 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 deification happens is because again these are children's movies he is the Disney uh he's the Walt Disney of Japan he has worked in family films his entire life and like even even stuff like Princess Mononoke was billed as a family adventure, uh, but in America, the same way that like uh, George Lucas kind of brought Akira Kurosawa into the mainstream mm-hmm. as like the, you know one of these lost masters that needs to be seen, uh, John Lasseter from Pixar uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, were key in kind of building up the idea that like this is it this is the guy from Japan that you need to know this is the big deal uh, can't can't be remiss without going into this anecdote that um yes when they made the deal with Disney uh, Miyazaki was still wary after what happened to Nausicaa Valley of the Wind and so uh, according to legend Harvey Weinstein received a uh, copy of the script to Princess Mononoke with a full-sized samurai sword and the words no cuts if only he had uh, just right then and there cut his own dick off with it <laughs> uh, in an interview in the Guardian uh, Miyazaki uh, actually clarifies actually my producer did that although I did go to New York to meet this man this Harvey Weinstein and I was bombarded with his aggressive nature hmm. all these demands for cuts he smiles momentarily i defeated him nice well and that was the end of harvey weinstein (laughs) (laughs) i know i was like great that guy perfect timing spirited away now we get to next miyazaki princess mononoke broke more oh yeah i mean how do we even yeah Yeah. it it was fucking huge it was like the biggest movie uh uh Highest grossing film in Japan in 1997. Mm-hmm. It uh, It's DVD sales in America. It didn't do as hot in the theaters in America, but DVD sales in America were quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he, he, yeah, it definitely, now he's like the superstar 
Miyazaki. Like he's he's the big time, you know, superstar director. Uh, he's uh, on vacation with his daughter and his daughter's friends, and he becomes inspired. He thinks to himself, you know, uh, these these young girls. I, I can't believe I never uh, wrote a movie for them. You know, for for that aged little girl. And he starts reading, doing research, reading shoujo magazine, uh, uh, like shoujo magazines rather. Their uh, i.e. magazines, comics. yeah, girl comics uh, magazines like Nakayoshi and Ribbon for inspiration. But uh, he see our Sailor Moon episode for that shit. But he felt that like he it was really aggravating him that all the subjects were crushes and romances. And in his mind, uh, this is not what girls held dear in her hearts. I do love this quote he has about um about this sort of this sort of stuff. Hold on, let me find this really quickly. Uh Sometimes they just want to have a cute boy dragon fly them out of the brothel. I'm sorry, bathhouse they work out of. <laughs> um oh shoot. I just found this quote and now I can't find it. Um oh, so- here it is. I become spec uh I become skeptical of the unwritten rule that just because a boy and a girl appear in the same feature, a romance must ensue. Rather, I want to portray a slightly different relationship, one where two mutually inspi- where the two mutually inspire each other to live. If I'm able to, then perhaps I'll be closer to portraying a true expression of love. And um, not that he necessarily pulls that off and spirit away, but I love that he's constantly trying to go a different way with these sorts of things than, than the natural traditional way, you know, that he wanted to create something. This is another quote actually and specifically about spirited away. I created a heroine who is an ordinary girl, someone with whom the audience can sympathize. It's not a story in which the characters grow up, but a story in which they draw on something already inside them brought out by the particular circumstances. I want my young friends to live like that. And I think they too have such a wish. And I think that's a really beautiful statement about it. I mean, what can we say about spirit? it away to even do it in in any amount of justice other than probably down the line we'll be giving it its own episode it's a gorgeous film it's gorgeous it has amazing imagery that like kind of get like hide the layers of stuff going on um you know you can deconstruct the imagery in this movie for years and like maybe get close to wrapping it up uh, and it kind of uh, highlights what Miyazaki's like modus operandi is, is that he creates these dreamlike worlds rich with meaning and rich with subtext and then it populates them with incredibly relatable characters that the animation impeccably acts so that even when they're just walking through a hallway, you kind of understand where their emotional soul is at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, everything and everything from like the dust mites to the bathhouse patrons to fucking no face Jesus Christ <laughs> um it's it it's filled with imagery that sticks with you it's it's the highest grossing film in Japan. Uh, it's it's just this giant production. It was on a budget of fifteen million. I think Disney was involved. They got like ten percent of the stakes or something like that. Um, originally, it was going to be more than three hours long. They had to make huge cuts, delete entire scenes from the story. Um, it was just this big, wonderful masterwork. So arguably uh, Miyazaki's greatest achievement. Um, it, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Uh, oh, also during the uh, during the Mononoke and how moving castle each time he said he was going to quit after that movie came out yeah yeah so after that we've got Howl's moving castle another fantastic film uh based on the novel by diana Win- winnie winnie jones the book uh never actually described how the castle moved so miyazaki actually that's what started him on like creating designs for uh-huh. it and everything 
it's it's you know he he traveled to France to study the architectures and surroundings. I enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle. I thought it was good. The ending's kind of abrupt and weird. Yeah. But that also, again, the dreamlike energy of it, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he is kind of just letting the the scenario flow out of him. Uh, like, you know, they build up this big bad witch character and then she's just kind of like chilling on a rocking chair for mm-hmm. like the end of the movie. Uh, Calcifer is like this dumb, silly, like bacon eating monster voiced by Billy Crystal. And then he becomes like a terrifying demon. Ca- like everything <laughs> about it, uh, especially how. Yeah. How's Moving Castle has this weird duplicitous. Hard to like get a bead on energy about it. Yes, but it is beautiful. Like yes. all of his movies, um, Ponyo comes next. Uh, all sh- and again, all of this shit is happening in the in the late nineties and two thousands. Once a year, where right? where, like, C- where CGI is kind of killing the American two D animation. Yeah, he industry. actually blames that on the fact that they did flail, as you mentioned, for a while. Disney did with their two D animation. So mm-hmm. Miyazaki feels like it's a shame. He felt that two D and three D should have lived together equally, but because they flailed so hard with with two D films for so long, that three D actually just absolutely engulfed uh, the two D, which is a shame. It's it's just weird to me what we were describing these landmark uh, cheese. Achievements in in 2D filmmaking. At the same time, in America, we got fucking Shrek. <laughs> Dunke, my swamp. Dunke. I, Shrek's good. Shrek's fine. Shrek's three's a little rough. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're willing to yield to that. Yeah, I'll say Shrek three is pretty rough. Fiona, oh my god, Fiona, you're a, you're a gross fucking thing. I'm Eddie Murphy. I'm a don- I'm a donkey. Parfait. If Chris Farley were the voice, it would have been a different deal all entirely. Shrek would have been up there with somebody once <laughs> told me the world is kind of Remember roll. when that was in every stupid movie? Ponyo was based <laughs> on a little mermaid. Uh, a little mermaid, not the little mermaid. <laughs> of course, I'm starting to lose my mind. It features 170,000 frames, which is a record for Miyazaki. He loved to, he preferred to draw the sea and water himself. He said he liked to explore and play with that, which is kind of nuts. I genuinely love Ponyo. It's great. Uh, uh, it is, again, another happy movie. Mm-hmm. Another kind of, if you just surrender to the dream logic of it. Uh, and the and and I actually like that it's kind of this modern Japan that he's portraying. And he's not like so mad at it because it's like a seaside town. And like Ponyo's this like ocean spirit, the daughter of like the gods of the ocean. And she's just like enjoying ham and instant ramen and like it's 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 a way less cynical um it's a way less cynical uh uh uh, film even though it deals a lot with like the power of the ocean and tsunamis in a time where japan was going through a lot of natural disasters Mm -hmm. he claims it's unintentional he claims that he really just enjoys man cohabitating with nature and the character of ponyo is just super cute and lovable Uh, And then finally, uh, The Wind Rises. And this is a biopic of Jiro Horikoshi, the designer of the Mitsubishi A5M. A perfect swan song for the director. A bookend, if you will. Absolutely. Wonderful. um, Again, a shame to admit, I have not yet seen The Wind Rises. I really, really want to see it. But it just seems, just from the stills, the description, the words he's said about it, it just seems so great, so fantastic um, uh, for, for him to go out on. Even though... 
it does seem like he may not be totally done. He does announce in September 2013 uh, that he will be retiring from the production of feature films due to his age. He wishes to continue, though, working on displays at the Studio Ghibli Museum, which I would love to go to. It seems like, man, every time I do an episode about Japan, I find out they have some new kick-ass museum, and then I'm just like, our museums are stupid and lame. MoMA, go fuck. I want to go to the Gundam Museum, you jerks. Uh, Yeah, I actually asked a friend who went to the Ghibli Museum uh, a year ago what she thought about it. Uh, Drawfee's own Julia Lepetite, and uh, (laughs) she was like, it was fucking magical. I got to watch an original Ghibli short that like, like, barely any other human get to see in their lifetimes Uh, and it's you get to uh, especially if you go there you can see a uh, life-size replica of Miyazaki's own personal workspace alongside some of his original paintings and um, we got uh, oh and of course uh, after having retired for like the fifth time uh, it was this year that uh, he was it was announced that he is actually beginning animation work on another project to be completed in 2019. Yeah, it's which means he'll be like 77 when it comes out. Boro the Caterpillar. Is that what it's called? I believe so, yeah. Set's released in 2019. I think that's what it is, uh, according to IMDb. Uh, one, going back to The Wind Rises really oh, also, quick. Also, while all this was happening, he had a shitty relationship with his son, Goro. Yeah, yeah. Because he was too busy completely holding up the entire medium of cell animation on uh, his back. Apparently, yeah, his son has been outspoken about how he was a very neglectful father, which is a, very, is a big shame, especially for someone who seems so connected to, to childhood whimsy. That he he really said he had to learn about his father through his uh, his father's works. I think there was some quote where he said, um, "As a father, my dad was a zero. As an anime director, uh, he was a, a, a perfect ten." Um, but uh, there was a controversy a few years ago where there was footage that emerged of uh, Hayao watching his son Goro's uh, pr- inaugural film. Uh, Tales from Earthsea, also produced by Ghibli, and uh, Miyazaki bolted from the theater to have a cigarette saying, it feels like I was sitting there for three hours. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he followed it with, uh, I saw my child. He hasn't become an adult. It's good that he made one movie, but he should probably stop making movies. Oh, uh, Goro's follow-up up on, from Up on Poppy Hill, I actually watched in the theaters, and it was delightful. So ah. keep at it, Goro. I'm sorry your genius of a dad wasn't around. Um, uh, going back to The Wind Rises, too, as I love this, uh, he, he was inspired by the uh, a quote from Horikoshi, all I wanted to do was make something beautiful. And he's been quoted to have said about this whole war machine to kind of wrap up this whole whimsical environment and environmental love this anti-war sentiment while also having a weird love for like you know the z- uh, war the, planes the zero was the plane that his dad made the parts for yep he says but remember this japanese boy airplanes are not tools for war they are not for making money airplanes are beautiful dreams engineers turn dreams into reality and so it's just this interesting battle he's got with himself about um, finding beauty in these kind of d- uh, disturbing-looking things, uh, a connection to nature, but also understanding that nature, too, is violent. There's a, there's so much going on in his themes and, and his viewpoints. It's n- Nothing's cut and dry, just like the villain's in Almost his, as uh, if his movies works. Uh, relate more to what it's actually like to be a human being mm-hmm. instead of fucking Shrek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You, you, oi! If you fucking do shit long enough, you kiss a princess or some shit. Oi, donkey! 
I'm Shrek. To not have this end on a Shrek quote, I'm going to give one last quote that I think summarizes a lot of how he feels. You must see with eyes unclouded by hate. See the good in that which is evil and the evil in that which is good. Pledge yourself to neither side, but vow instead to preserve the balance that exists between the two. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. <laughs> Step to the world. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for our Miyazaki episode. Uh, you guys are the best. What else can I say? Um, you never know if you don't go. Follow me on Twitch, Hold Meters Ho. Hey, now. Jake, where uh, can we find you? You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uh, check out the uh, Dorkly YouTube channel coming up. I'm going to be uh, d- premiering another Jared the Angry Stepbrother puppet awesome. video. <laughs> awesome. And uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. It always helps so much to really boost us up and get more visibility. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a good one, y'all. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.